flying to Oshkosh this year, or know someone who is, the famous Fisk arrival and air venture can be very complex, busy, and fast-paced. Whether you're a rookie or a veteran, everyone can benefit from some training and proficiency prior to following the railroad tracks and rocking their wings. Luckily, you can prepare ahead of time using your home flight simulator. X-Plane 11 Microsoft Flight Sim 2020 Prepared or FSX is your gateway to participate in SimVenture. SimVenture is put on by Pilot Edge and has the actual Oshkosh air traffic controllers volunteering for your benefit to help you prepare for AirVenture. It all happens July 14th through 17th. Visit pilotedge.net slash simventure to learn more. Hi. I'm John Niehaus, Director of Program Development for the National Association of Flight Instructors. I'd like to welcome you to this episode of the NAFI More Right Rudder podcast, the podcast for flight instructors on the go. And today is a special day because I have a special guest, a brand new author of the Pilot's Guide to Air Traffic Control. I'd like to welcome Andy Watson. Andy, welcome. Hello, thank you for having me. Absolutely. Now, Andy is a uh, air traffic controller, as you would expect. He's been doing that since 2006. He's worked with Cleveland, Chicago, Washington centers. Um, he is a private pilot with an instrument rating, which gives him a uh, interesting perspective on the air traffic control side. And he talks about that in the book. We'll talk about that a little bit later, too. Uh, he's a mission pilot for the Civil Air Patrol. And uh, during his time in uh, ATC, he's also participated in the Accident Investigation Daily Roundup Meetings, which has given him an interesting perspective on some of the stories that he mentions in the book. So once again, Andy, I'm so glad you uh, were able to carve out the time to talk to me today and, our, and of course, our members and flight instructors out there. Um, I do understand that uh, to participate in this, you need to do a quick sort of air traffic control FAA disclaimer. Why don't you go ahead and get that out of the way and then we'll, uh, we'll, we'll chat. Yep. So to make this legal, the uh, opinions given in this, the opinions that I give are that of my own and not necessarily the same as the FAA. Perfect. <laughs> um, so, you know, what did I miss? Tell me a little bit more about uh, about yourself and, and how this book came to be. And then we'll talk about a few of the, uh, the, the stories that are contained within it. Well, honestly, how I came about is I started doing some public speaking. I spoke at Oshkosh and Sun and Fun and just a lot of a lot more stories came up when people were asking me questions about it and all that kind of stuff. And somebody mentioned that I should be writing a book and put them all in there. So that's essentially what I what I did. Yeah, and you were you were generous enough to send me a book, and I've I've gotten uh, uh, a little bit into it, and I'm definitely going to finish it because it's uh, it's something that I'm finding very interesting. It's nice to know from the pilot's perspective that uh, um, the the way that ATC works, and and uh, mm -hmm. it's not quite as scary. Going, oh man, you know, maybe yeah. are they, am I going to get uh, am I going to get busted for this or that or you know whatever. You guys are our friends, your partners, right? Not uh, not adversaries, if uh, if I could say it that way. You know, one of my um, pilot friends who is a former naval aviator phrased it the best. He said that this book puts it into perspective that allows the pilot to add air traffic control as a part of their crew. Yeah. And I thought that that was just a cool way to look at it because that's exactly how 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 it should be. I mean, we all are on the same team. Yeah, we have to do spacing and turn people out, but it's all to get everybody from point A to point B safely. Mm hmm. Mm -hmm. No, it's funny. You talk about, uh, you talk about spacing. I had a funny story that happened to me about a month ago. Um, you know, as pilots, we're impatient, right? You know, we are always looking for, for shortcuts and, and short-term gains and stuff like this. And, um, I was, uh, I was flying from, uh, Chicago to somewhere down in like the Charleston, South Carolina area. I think it might've been Charleston executive. And uh, I asked a controller, I said, hey, um, you know, we've got a bit of a convoluted route here. Can I get a shortcut? And he said, yep, stand by. And about five minutes later, he hadn't come back and he switched controllers. Um, and so I asked the next one, like, hey, can I get a shortcut? <laughs> and I think I upset him in some way um, because um, our route, which was not the straightest of lines, but it was okay. He goes, yep, I've got a, I've got a point for you. And he gives me this point and it's like a 90 degree turn and then a 90 degree turn back. And, <laughs> and I just went, I guess I'm not asking for shortcuts anymore. 
<laughs> is that a controller just having a bad day or or did I just do something I shouldn't have? Well, you know, I, I actually cover this uh, in, in one of the chapters of the, the easiest way to get what you're looking for. Um, but basically, what, what, what I tell people is if you ask for a shortcut from one controller and you get switched and or especially if they say unable, um, don't ask the next controller, ask the one after that. Oh. So and the reason why is because half the time we're sitting right next to each other. We, we, if they say we have your request or something like that, they've already forwarded on traffic's not working for whatever reason to just allow it for, allow them to give it to you. Or sometimes it's a situation where I, the next controller already has the handoff on you and I'm just waiting to change frequencies. It creates a lot more work for me to call that other controller unless they are sitting right next to me and, and ask them if it's okay or whatever. Sometimes it's just forward your request to the next controller. And then once you get into the air, their airspace, they do it. Or sometimes we call and say, hey, they're looking for a shortcut, your control. Uh, because that controller is not allowed to turn any aircraft while they're still in my sector. They have to wait for that airplane to get inside their sector. Interesting. So if you do that, that's, uh, that, that's, that's the mechanics of how it works on our side of the world. So it, what, what I always say is, if you ask and they tell you no, or they don't even get back to you, maybe they're too busy to even worry about it because shortcuts are the absolute last priority for us. Our, right. our priority is anything that has to do with safety or um, traffic, right? Yeah. So we got to keep everybody separated. Then we also keep everybody vectored away from the thunderstorms when they ask for it and that kind of stuff. And then chop a shortcut just for a shortcut is my absolute last priority when I'm busy. Yeah. But when I can accommodate it, I'm all about doing it. Is that like, does that create a lot of extra work for you guys? Is it, is it, you know, asking for, for a lot or is it um, like, what is that? What, what happens on your end when we ask for something like that? It all depends. Um, if you are on the East coast, like where I'm at Washington center right now, our airspace is set up. We got Q routes with that are like eight miles separated with, with all the new England traffic going North, Northeast bound, all of the uh, Florida traffic and all the DC guys heading south southwest bound so i always get i I work a lot of the uh the the florida traffic coming out of dc all those guys always want shortcuts but if i give them a shortcut it's going to be right in the face of all the guys descending for the dc area and also the guys going to new york so that most of the time i can't issue a much more than a few degrees about five six degrees of a shortcut in those situations because i have to keep you spaced with everybody going the other way because of the climbing and descending traffic. Now, when mm-hmm. everybody is all level, of course, we have, we use right for direction at the centers all the time. Um, the, the tray cons don't do it as much, um, especially down low, but uh, so it's not a lost, lost knowledge level. Let's put it that way. Um, so when everybody's level, it's a lot easier to give those shortcuts, but whenever you're dealing with climbing and descending traffic, that's why we have the routes. And really these routes are all set up to keep everybody separated from each other. Mm-hmm. So when you're on the route, that's probably the safest place for you, to be honest with you, because then it's not abnormal. Right? right. So, but no, if we can give a shortcut, we do. There's some controllers that like to sit down and give everybody shortcuts, but then they end up creating a lot of work for themselves at times. Other controllers prefer to leave it on the aircraft on routes because of the traffic that they have. And it just keeps everything a lot easier for everybody. Sure. Sure. Now, I mean, your, your book is chock full of, uh, of some really great stories. Um, you know, like I said, I've, I've really enjoyed reading the, the parts that I've read. For our audience, to give them sort of the wet their whistle a little bit, um, okay. you know, what's one of your favorite stories that you're maybe willing to share um, with, uh, with the public before they have a chance to get your book? You know, um, one of the stories, actually, it, it's a spatial disorientation story. I was, I went to the daily meeting and there was a, and we go through what they call the stack. And it's basically a stack of papers of all the accidents and the incidents from either the day or the weekend before. And as they're going through, there was a, there was a Pilatus PC-12 that departed an, out of an airport down in Texas. It was a part 135 flight and they were a medical flight. So um, they were repositioning to go pick up a patient. So they had a pilot a flight nurse and a flight medic on board. And let me rephrase this. I, I'm not going to say that this is my favorite story because um, sadly these people did not, not survive and, and my heart goes out to them and their families. Uh, but I think it's one of the more important chapters for pilots to learn from because they, 
they go out 1130 at night, they get dispatched out, they get in the airplane, they take off, I believe it's runway four. And for noise abatement reasons, that's the calm wind runway. The con controller tells them to turn right on course, which is like a hundred, like a 205 degree right turn. Hmm. So it's a right turn, keep them out over, keep them east of the city. And, but the weather, and I forget exactly where, what the ceiling was, but it was low. It was like 800 feet overcast or something like that. So they depart out, they start the right turn. Well, the pilot did not um, put in the new beacon code. So the tower had a debright, which is a, the radar in the tower cab that they can see, saw that they were squawking the wrong beacon code. So told them to um, confirm their squawk in the right one. So he goes, he changes it. The controller sees that on the, the radar scope and tells him to contact departure. Well, while he's, so he contacts departure while he's in a right bank angle, right, right hand turn, and he's climbing the departure, um, he loses his beacon code altogether. So I don't know if he happened to hit the switch to turn it off as he was messing with things or what. So, um, so as he's in this turn still, he, tells the controller tells him to recycle his transponder. So he does. And then he falls out of the sky, sadly. And it, so as we're sitting around this meeting, we, the one investigator says, of course, we're going to investigate this like we always do, but this sure does have all the earmarks of spatial disorientation. Now, at that point, this meeting probably has I don't know, 15, 20 people in the room. And then they also have a speakerphone um, and with people on there as well. And the one, the one medical doctor, the flight surgeon dials in from, he was out in Fort Worth. He dialed in every day and he actually spoke up saying that this is exactly the scenario that they use in the FAA simulator called the Vertigon. And what the Vertigon is, is this box that um, on the inside has a um, flight deck mock-up and so whoever the student, the pilot or the, the student pilot, whoever you want to call it, gets in, closes the box. It's got a little TV screen on the front. And then the instructor gives commands through the intercom. So first thing they do is they, they get them going and then they tell them to turn one direction or the other. And while they're in the turn, they give one of three instructions to change your radio frequency, change your beacon code, or pick up a pin off the floor. And the reason why is because whenever you do not have visual reference to the horizon, so you're in the clouds and you're in a bank angle one way or the other, doesn't matter which way, but anytime you're in the bank angle without reference and you move your head, no matter what it's for, but all three of those commands forces the person to move their head 100% of the time, that person will experience spatial disorientation. And as I'm sitting there, I'm, it just dawns on me that I learned about spatial disorientation when I was going through pilot training, but as a controller, we've never really been taught about it. That's, that's not our job. It's the pilot and command's job to make sure that they maintain orientation and control of their aircraft. So therefore, what we recommend from that for the pilots is to, if you're ever in a bank angle, whatever you do, do not move your head if you, when you're IMC. So that is key number one. Key number two, if air traffic control gives you the next instruction, because that's just what we naturally do, the most simple thing that you can do is just key your mic, which is always on your yoke as you're flying, right? On the control wheel and just say unable or standby. I'm sorry, standby, not unable, but standby. And then once you go wings level, get yourself, give yourself a couple seconds to make sure you're still good. And then say, either repeat the clearance or do what they said. So I think that's one of the most important lessons that, that I tell in this book, um, just because there are a lot of, uh, there, there are a lot of deaths because of spatial disorientation, both for the pilots, both from the crew and the passenger's point of view. In fact, there's a FAA statistic that 90% of spatial disorientation accidents um, are fatal. Oh, so. And, you know, I, and I don't want to get too heavy on this, but mm -hmm. I, I know that everybody talks about when there's a accident, you know, everybody talks about the, the people on board and, and the families and stuff like that. But it seems like uh, one of the, the lesser talked about, possibly even ignored 
um, issues is what that does to controllers. I mean, you guys, yeah. that's got to take a toll. Um, and is that, how, how is that dealt with? Well, you know, we have the same programs that uh, like firefighters and police have available to them for the uh, incident stress management or whatever it's called. Thank God I haven't had to deal with it personally. I, yeah. my heart just absolutely aches for the people that's, that do go through that. Yeah. Um, so it's just, and there's controllers that never recover. There's controllers that are able to get back from the job. Um, but yeah, it's a very serious situation for all parties involved, of course, especially the, the uh, ones that lose their lives, of course. But, but yeah, the uh, people that a single accident affects is just, it's a lot larger than what most people would think. Yeah. I, I can't even imagine. I can't yeah, imagine I can't either on a, on a lighter note, you know, getting back to you and I had a conversation prior to this. And, and, mm -hmm. uh, as I said, multiple times, boy, I really wish we had been recording this because, uh, we talked about some really cool things. Um, you know, one of the things that we were, we were chatting about was the pilot deviation story mm -hmm. or, or chapter, <laughs> and yes. you know some of the things you know from both a pilot's perspective and ATC's perspective of like how do these things happen? Um, and you mentioned um, you know how pilots can potentially land on um, other runways, and you said there was certain terminology uh, that you guys are supposed to say. Like, what are these kinds of things? Because I'm not sure pilots understand that there's there's certain sort of key terms we should be paying attention to. Yep. So basically when we're talking about wrong surface operations, that's, that's the technical name for landing on either a taxiway or the wrong runway. Um, there was a student pilot that went out, they did for us, for us, um, a solo flight out to the practice area. And as they're coming back, uh, going into an airport that has parallel runways. So he's coming back from the Northeast and was told to expect the left side, which would be the side that they're favoring. And so he read that back and was told to report three miles out. So he does. And when he reports the three miles out, the controller says, okay, you're clear to land on the left side. Well, the pilot read back clear to land on the right side. So he crosses final for the left runway, turns final. And as he's in the landing flare is when the, the controller noted, could see exactly where he was positioned because they, they don't have radar there. And there was nobody else on the runway. So he just let him land because he figured it was safer. And, but what I've come about is I'm having conversations with, with some people. Um, there's a psychologist that uh, was in the office and I was talking to her about this. And I, I, I don't have the specific study to reference, but basically what she told me was the human mind doesn't work. When that student pilot read back the right side instead of the left side, of course, we can hear it played his day on the tapes. But in the heat of, in, in the situation, the human mind doesn't work in the aspect to catch those tiny little changes. So she said controllers are better than most because that's part of our job and that's what we, we listen for and we try to do it. But it's very easy. It goes against human nature for us to be trying to do that um, as the sole way to catch a problem, right? So if you as a pilot are think you heard something different than you were told to expect. Uh, the towers are in the, the point 65, which is our, we call it the aim, but it's really a job order. Uh, and it tells us all the phraseology we're supposed to be using. The controllers are supposed to say, uh, change runway, runway two, eight, right, clear to land. If they don't say change runway, but you heard a different runway, ask them the most simple thing that you can do. Uh, just say, uh, you want us on the right side now instead of the left or confirm the runway or or something. I, I think I'd probably say it more as, okay, so you want us to change to the other runway because that will be the big red flag for them to hear. They'll come back. No, no, I want you on this side. So change runway is very key when it comes to that situation. And if you're ever unsure, don't just read back what you think, make sure you say something in plain language to highlight the fact that you're looking at a bigger change here, because if there was other traffic over there, that could be catastrophic. Yeah. You know, and, and, I'll be the first to say that no matter how many hours you have, um, mistakes still happen. You know, it's it easy to sit on the ground and say, man, how did that, how did that bonehead do this? Or how did that person do that? Um, but as you said, like in the heat of the moment, sometimes, you know, your knowledge, it doesn't, it's not a, a skill-based thing. It can be a task saturation thing. It can be, you don't know what happened during that flight. They might be stressed out. It could be a student pilot. 
Um, and I was actually involved in a research project in college that said something very similar to what, what you just mentioned, which is the more stress that you get as details start coming in, your frame of focus starts to collapse. And the very first thing that goes away is your ability to listen, your ability to hear. Um, you know, when you're focused on a approach and it's gusty and it's rainy and there's, you know, um, possible wind shear and stuff like that, a controller can be screaming in your ear and there's a very real chance you may not hear any of it. Um, yep. And so unfortunately, these things do happen. And, and I can say on top of that, and I'll bring this back to sort of the flight instructor perspective, you know, both this and sort of your previous point of like, you know, controllers are here to, to help. There are friends. Controllers have probably saved my certificate multiple times. Um, you know, uh, we were talking about a, a possible time where, um, you know, how do people land on the wrong runway? And thankfully, I haven't done that. But I'll admit right here, right now that I have lined up for the wrong runway before. To the point where, like, you know, everybody says, well, if you're doing a visual approach, tune in the ILS frequency or, or load an approach or something like that. And that works great. But the human mind is a very interesting thing. Um, there was one time it was a, a night flight. We had tuned in the ILS and we had lined up for the runway and I'm looking at it and I'm going, huh, the ILS isn't lining up with this. And of course, instead of me going, well, hang on, maybe I'm lining up the wrong runway. I went, what's wrong with the ILS? Why is the ILS not working? This doesn't yep. seem right. And, and then I think the controller was looking at it going, what the heck is he doing? And finally, uh, they sort of just gave me this little poke that I needed. They're like, um, you sure you're lined up with uh, runway so-and-so? And I look down and I look over and I go, nope. Yep. <laughs> and I just kind of went, you know, I think we might need to just go around. And, and I, again, I think the controller was relieved that, uh, that that decision was made, but yeah. he saved my behind. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, for that and all the controllers that, uh, that have been generous in asking me those pointed types of questions, you know, that's very mm -hmm. much appreciated from the pilot side. Well, I don't know if you remember the Air Canada incident at San Francisco. Um, that uh, barely that went around they were lined up for the taxiway instead of the runway oh no i hadn't heard this one yeah this is actually one of the stories i tell um, ending this and i i interviewed the accident investigator in charge on this and a couple so basically and this is this is a few years ago now but it at what almost midnight something like that it could be off on the time but they're coming in on the visual approach and they shut down the left runway of the, of the parallels for um, runway maintenance or construction. I'm sorry. They, it was a long-term thing. They were shutting it down for midnight shifts every, every night. Well, it was a crew from the East coast of, of air Canada. They're coming in Their circadian rhythm is used to, it's like three in the morning, their time with their body. And they've, they've been um, sitting on reserve and all that kind of stuff. So, I mean, it's just, it, everything just kind of came, came together. That's the Swiss cheese model type thing. Mm -hmm. But basically this, a, this visual approach, they, they go to the bridge and then they get to a certain point and then they have to make their left turn and line up visually to the runway. They lined up for the taxiway because of course the left side being with the lights turned off, it actually at night, it actually, you had the two parallels is what it looked like. They were lined up for the right side. There were four heavies sitting, waiting for departure. And um, I go into all the details on that, but it was a, it was a near miss. And from that, there's procedure changes that happened. They got rid of that, that approach, that, that visual approach and changed that. And also they have made changes to the technology with the radar systems. And it gives at, at least at the major airports, I don't know how many of them are in there, but it also, there's an alarm that goes off if they're not, if the airplane's not on centerline anymore mm. for the runway that, that it's programmed into going. So there's been a lot of changes, but uh, it was very interesting seeing or hearing from the accident investigator that was a part of that. He actually got pictures the exact, the, the, the same time, 24 hours later, um, he was up in a helicopter and he was able to get some pictures and, and all that kind of stuff. And I do show that and I, I will be showing that in my presentations because you can't even see the uh, four airplanes sitting there unless you're like really close looking at it. Cause of course they're just sitting there with their navigation lights on. They don't have, they haven't lit their right. themselves up like a Christmas tree. Cause they want, they don't want to blind the pilots inbound. Right. So yeah, it was a, a near miss. It was, um, there's like five different ways that they, 
they calculated what the actual distance was. I think they settled on, it was either 16 or 20 feet. They missed the, the second aircraft, the, the tail of the second aircraft by. But uh, yeah, it was, it, was, uh, it was a pretty close one. But the flight crew initiated the, the go around and like not even a split second later, the controller issued the, the go around as well. So both parties knew something wasn't going, going well. And luckily the pilots initiated it when they did, because if they would have waited to start the maneuver after the controller said it, they likely would have collided. Oh. But, but so it did get close, but yeah, it's a, it was a very interesting thing to learn about how easy it is to make that mistake. Oh, it's, it is. And, and, you know, aviation is about doing our best to mitigate mistakes because pilots mm -hmm. are pilots, controllers are controllers. We're all human beings. Mistakes are going to be made. And, you know, it's, it's cool that the FAA has sort of shifted policy a little bit to sort of understanding that people make mistakes. Yep. Um, as long as, you know, you don't do anything um, that is, you know, completely negligent or, or any of that kind of stuff or on purpose, right? Malicious, uh, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, we're, we're trying to figure out how do we spot these and how do we have the positive outcome? Because nobody wants anything, you know, to go wrong. Right. Um, again, coming back to the flight instructor perspective, um, from a controller side, as, mm -hmm. a, as a instructor, you know, what kinds of things should we be telling our, our private pilot students about ATC? Like what kinds of things can we tell them to sort of create long-term success for their ability to communicate with you guys? And also maybe be a little bit less afraid of talking on the radio. Well, for the last part, uh, muscle memory when it comes to talking on the radio is a real thing. It's not just truly the muscle memory of maneuvering your aircraft. It's, it's practicing what you say and all, all controllers talk too fast. We try not to, I'm I've been accused of it myself. Um, and, and I try to refrain from that, but at the end of the day, the reason why is because we're spitting out the same exact clearance time and time again. The only thing that changes is the call sign. So you get that heightened level of muscle memory of what you say and, and how you say it, it makes, it takes the stress out for that individual completely. Cause now you're just having a conversation like you would if you're on, on the phone to whoever your best friend is, I won't say spouse, but whoever your best friend is on the telephone, right? Um, so that, uh, that would be first and foremost. And that's actually one of the things that um, I talk about from the spatial disorientation thing, going back to that, uh, I would recommend flight instructors to put their students when, when they, I know you only get a couple hours with the private pilot side, but you get more time to focus on it during instrument training of having them say exactly what they would be telling air traffic control. I obviously don't hit the button, but if like simulate what those, what those communications would be between back and forth and have them practice telling air traffic to stand by, because that's a pretty, when, when you're already intimidated by air traffic control, which most people are at least for a while, that's a pretty big move to make to tell air traffic to stand by. Well, if you need it, you need it. So that, that's one of the, the times that, that I actually say that. Um, and then the other one that I, that I tell people to practice is have their students practice what they would say during the different types of, of emergencies. So have them actually say, um, and of course there, you got Mayday and Pan Pan are the two approved words. Realistically, all the emergencies that I've worked, pilots have just used plain language. We're declaring an emergency. That, that perks our ears up just as much. Say the other ones if you want to, because that is what the book says. That will also perk our ears up. But if you just say, um, center, Cessna, one, two, three, declaring an emergency, we've lost an engine, we're going to attempt a, a landing um, in the field below. Or we, we've, um, our engine's running rough, where's the closest airport? go through those different scenarios and actually have them say that a few different times, have them practice that because then it'll come when it comes time for them to do it. There's already a lot of stress for newer pilots to declare an emergency because they're afraid of the, the big bad FAA, right? In those emergency situations, we're actually here to help. We're going to coordinate whatever you need. If you need emergency equipment waiting at the airport, whether it's uncontrolled field, whether it's the big, the big airport that actually has them on site, we're going to coordinate anything that you need 
and we are there to help. So never be afraid to declare the emergency. But so that's the first hurdle they have to get past is actually declaring it because I can't tell you how many times I've heard pilots walk all the way around the word emergency trying to tell us what their problem is and not actually say because they don't want to declare the emergency. Well, the other funny thing is I have the authority to declare the emergency on the pilot's behalf. And so does the flight company. So I've declared emergencies for pilots. And they didn't even know it. <laughs> One of those type things. So it, awesome. uh, they, they probably didn't even know because they probably never even had to file the report because why would you have to file a report unless something didn't add up or something like that? So that's not my neck of the woods. That's more the business side. But most of the time, we're just there to make sure you get on the ground safely and do what we can to help. So, but yeah, it all comes back to the muscle memory because in the situation, it's easier for them to say what they've already practiced once they make that decision that it's time. Well, yeah. And, and ultimately the other thing from a flight instructor side is, is that um, I have told students, sometimes it's better to just say something, even if it's not proper phraseology than to say nothing at all. If you're concerned about how you're going to say it and you get yourself into a worse problem because you didn't say something versus just saying, Mm -hmm. you know, word vomit of this is what's happening. (laughs) you're not doing yourself any favors. Um, And, and I think that they, it's a good thing to hear someone like yourself from air traffic control say that's okay. Right. We prefer plain language. It doesn't have to be exact. And just as long as we know what's going on, like I said, we're there to help. Yeah. So yeah, for the flight instructors, just have them practice those, like whatever the different emergency checklists are, have them practice one of those type things. Cause I know when I went through training, they always had me, I would always tell them I'd notify air traffic control. That'd be the end of it. I never once actually practiced what I would actually say in that situation. So. And having declared emergency myself, uh, at least a couple times, um, I don't happen more than what people think it does. And honestly, there is some comfort to it. Like, you know, the, the controllers that I have worked with, uh, in those situations, um, have been amazing controllers. Like they, they have exactly like you said, I mean, they, they've said, Hey, do you need help with this? Do you need help with that? We'll give you vectors. What do you need? Tell me what you need. And, and thankfully it's, it's all come to a a positive conclusion. And, and some of that comes back to you were able to help alleviate some of the workload for me, Mm -hmm. um, so that I could get through whatever it is that I needed to get through. I have a, a really good instructor friend of mine and he says, you know, if there's anything wrong, you know, I declare emergency. Yep. Now I'm not saying, you know, don't dial 911 for no reason. Right. But, um, you know, it's better to, to declare it and get through whatever you need, no matter how minor it might be mm-hmm. than to not again, and have a worse issue come through, uh, the, the situation. So, um, you know, that it's, same it, naval aviator that I brought up before yeah. when I was talking about one of the other stories that, uh, that, that is in the book, but his point of view is anytime he's in the abnormal or emergency sections of the checklist, that's an automatic declared emergency. That's a really good rule of thumb. I, I thought, I, yeah, when he said that, I'm like, wow, that is awesome. I'm going to tell as many people I can about that because I think that actually gives good hard guidelines to part 91 pilots that don't have a set of SOPs mm-hmm. requiring them to declare like a lot of the bigger companies do. So so why do you think as a controller, why do you think that some of the pilots are so afraid to declare? Like you said, you know, they, they'll dance around the emergency issue, but they won't say it. Um, is there, what do you think from your perspective, where, where does that come from? Well, I think it's pretty deep seated in the culture, to be honest with you. And there's a few reasons. First off, and probably one of the biggest ones reasons, even today, how many air traffic controllers do you know? How many controllers have you been able to bounce ideas off of and stuff on a regular basis, unless you happen to be friends with one? You're the I second. Mean, overall, <laughs> yeah, there you go. I, so, and, and you do this for a living, right? Right. So, I mean, there's only what, 13, 14,000 of us nationwide. And we all work in buildings that you, I mean, I, I have a guard shack that I have to show my identification in. I have to scan my badge anytime I go in and out of the building. I mean, we're, we're, we are confined inside the fence essentially, Right. And we have operation rain check, but our staffing overall has been pretty poor over the recent years because we're still trying to recuperate from all the retirements. Um, and you can only do so much training at a time. So we still have a few years of the, the staffing issue that's going on. But because of that, they're not, they haven't been doing the operation rain check is what it's called, where pilots come in for tours. They, oh, that's they, what they, that's called. Okay. Yeah, it's called operation rain check. That does happen from time to time. 
Um, but when staffing's low, it's it's just one of the it's one of the first things that just falls off because it's an extra extracurricular activity essentially, right? Mm-hmm. So we don't get to cross paths um, with the pilots from a controller's point of view. So really the control, and on top of that, controllers aren't pilots. The majority of them are. There are a few, and there's and a lot of them are ex- very excellent pilots. Um, and there's, there's also flight instructors and stuff too. Um, but overall, the, the group are, they're not pilots. So, and you don't have to be to do this job. We, we use radar and we give vectors and we, we learn how the winds affect those turns and the different altitudes and stuff like that. that's the type of stuff that pilots don't need to need to know. Right. So we are specialized in our job. You guys are specialized in your job. And even though they overlap, there's not much communication between the two. Mm-hmm. So that, that's the first one. The second one is for many years, probably until about 10 years ago, I think it's the culture change in the FAA where they're really trying to get, use data to make safety changes. So when you, when you file the NASA reports or um, the airline pilots, they have ASAP. Controllers now have ATSAP is what we call it. Um, and we actually, anytime that there's a safety issue, we go plug that in and you may not hear anything back, but what it's doing is it's creating a database and once they start seeing trends and stuff, they actually do make changes from that. So I highly always recommend filing the NASA reports as pilots because that, that is a big deal. Um, never seems like it, but it, it helps a lot more than what people think. Um, but it used to be you screw up and all of a sudden you have a physio trying to take your certificate away. Mm-hmm. So that was the mindset that was for so many years that I still believe is it's part of the basic culture that's still there. And that's part of what I'm trying to do here is to open up the communication between the, the two sides and say that it's not a bad thing to declare the emergency. We truly are here to help. We change everything from our side to help you and not just coordinate the stuff, but we're going to move other airplanes out of your way. We're going to make life as easy as possible so you can remedy that situation as what it can be versus the alternative of not even tell us about it. And then all of a sudden you end up crashing short of the runway. Right. So, I mean, that's, but that, to me, that, that tends tends to be the big thing, but I know that culture has changed. So even if there is a pilot deviation that gets processed, if that FISDO thinks that you have learned your lesson from the situation and it was truly a mistake or whatever the scenario was, they're there to, their first step is to coach you through it and help you along. Now, if you, now, from what I hear from the one friend that I have, I mean, if you're going in there, you're the know-it-all pilot and you're basically just brushing them off and won't talk to them and stuff like that. Well, then, yeah, they do have the authority to do a lot of things if they choose to. But if you're nice about it and you're actually sincere with trying to make sure it doesn't happen again, it's, it really is more of a safety teaching culture now than it was to just take certificates away. Attitude is everything, right? It is. It really is. Yeah. No. So it's interesting. Um, you know, I, I, I hate to focus on negatives um, and I don't mean this as a negative, but I think it's where people are most interested. You, you mentioned pilot deviations, right? Yep. Um, and you mentioned in the book that in your entire time as a, as a uh, ATC uh, controller, you've only ever had to issue one deviation, right? Mm-hmm. That's what pilots are so afraid of. You know, that's, that's where this, you know, sometimes friction between pilots and controllers are. Cause we're, you know, we're, we're out here going, Oh my God, I made a mistake. Did they notice? Am I going to get a, am I going to get a phone number? Am I going to get a letter in the mail? Like, right. you know, walk me through like how this works and, and maybe try to put some of our listeners at ease. Um, you mentioned something I had never heard of before in the book. You, you said there's something called a, a, a brasher report or brasher code or something. 40. Yep. Tell me about what that is and, and, you know, what should pilots know about this whole scary deviation thing? Well, first and foremost, if we have to file a pilot deviation, that means that we have to file paperwork, right? And instead of me going out and taking a break and getting my head relaxed and for the next session, I'm doing paperwork. So at the end of the day, unless it's truly a bad thing, overall, the controllers I know and I tend to do the same way. If there's no harm, no foul, I tend to not say a word. But we're not giving license for people to screw so, up on purpose. No, definitely <laughs> don't do that. And I t- one of the stories I tell in the book, the one that I did turn in, um, I mean, it, it was malicious of, of what it was. He was blatantly disregarding our instructions. Well, at that point, guess what? I'm sorry. 
that that's on you. Um, and if there's ever a loss of separation, um, they're going to do their investigation. And if it was a controller that was bad, that was wrong, then the FAA will handle that in their, their manner. Um, if the pilot caused a loss of separation due to a deviation, that 100% of the time will always be um, filed and, and get the FISDO involved with that. that that's out of our hands. Um, but yeah, it, uh, so, I mean, those, those are some of the situations, but as long as you're trying to do the right thing, mistakes happen. Everybody knows it. We're all human. Controllers are human. Pilots are human. We, we get that. But as long as you're trying to do the right thing overall, it's not going to be, it, it's usually not a, uh, it, it usually doesn't end bad in those circumstances. Now with that, so basically the brasher warning that you're talking about is we have the FAA, the controllers have to tell a pilot, a possible pilot deviation advises upon arrival, you call whatever facility you're at and they give you the phone number, right? That's to allow you to get your mind wrapped around it. And, and if you wanna write down stuff on your iPads now, not even kneeboards, but however you wanna to do to kind of get yourself prepared for that conversation and to deal with it later. That's, that is what um, that brasher warning is all about. Now, I had a situation where I was wanting the FISDO that aircraft had already went, um, had already done and landed. And there was some miscommunication. The pilot was upset. I understood why he was upset from what he said, but when I back, went back and listened to the tapes, he didn't say what he was telling me he said. So the controllers had no idea what he was actually looking for. So I was hoping that the FISDO would actually go just have a conversation with him because it is the safety culture. Um, but because I didn't issue that brasher warning, they, they wouldn't even accept it. They wouldn't even have that conversation. So theoretically, not saying in all situations, but theoretically, if you're not issued the brasher warning while you're flying, or if you land and they call the facility, because they can do that too, if, if um, shortly after you land of, hey, give us a call back, give them the message type thing, then, but I mean, that's pretty rare. So if, if they don't issue the brasher warning while you're in flight, nine times out of 10, nothing's ever going to come from it. So there's a, there's a meme out there that uh, is used quite a bit. And it's a picture of Kermit the Frog looking out a window and it's raining outside. And he's kind of got one hand up and he's looking a little sad. And I've seen it for things like, I wonder if my bad landing still thinking about me too. And, um, you know, I, I sort of equate it to like, I wonder if ATC noticed I busted out to you by 200 feet. Like they didn't say anything, but I'm now here and I'm, you know, wide awake at midnight trying to sleep, thinking about like, Oh my God, did they notice? Um, so what you're basically saying is for the most part, you know, there's certain exceptions to any rule, but um, if you, if you don't tell me like, Hey, you, you screwed up, everything's okay. Yeah, pretty much. Okay. Now with that altitude thing, air traffic's not even going to know if you're at the center most, most of the time, because of how we put, we type everything in at the center. That's why if you ever hear typing in the background when the controller's talking, we're literally talking and typing at the same time. So if I tell you to climb to flight level 330, I'm typing that in. Mm. It depends on how I assign that. If it's a temporary altitude, like if you request flight level 360, but I'm only taking the top of my stratum up to 330, it'll show me to the 100 altitudes where you're at. But if you're at your assigned altitude, 360 in that, that example, um, if you're within 300 feet, my computer system's going to show you as level. Mm. Now, the radars use at the tray cons at the approach controls, they, they, don't, they don't type things in, they still write on strips. Okay. So that will show everything there um, to the 100 altitude. But yeah, if you're level and cruise at the center, we don't even know unless, unless you bust 300 feet. Oh, okay. So And let's say something like that does happen. You know, again, I'm sort of airing my own dirty laundry here, but, uh, you know, if people can learn from my mistakes, then I'm okay with it. You know, there have been times uh, as a, a flight instructor, as a training captain for my former company, you know, you're, you're flying with new pilots, either new to the airplane or, or just new in general. Um, and sometimes they, they do things that you don't catch or it happens so quickly that, uh, you know, by the time you catch it and fix it, you know, it's already happened. Right. Um, and let's say, let's say a friend of mine <laughs> may have gone up uh, by a thousand or two that they weren't supposed to. Mm -hmm. And, you know, thankfully uh, in this particular case, 
um, the controller working with my friend um, <laughs> was just like, Hey, um, what altitude are you guys at? And, you know, I think we had thought, or well, he had thought that uh, they had said this particular altitude and the controller said, no, I said this one. And we said, well, we repeated back that one. It was sort of that, that two and tree sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, thankfully they, you know, they didn't, uh, they, they didn't give us any hard time. Is that purely because there were no other airplanes in the way? Is that how we got away with it? Yeah. Yeah. Cause if, if there's a loss of separation, that's always going to be followed up. Okay. Um, and in the center environment, that's a thousand feet above or below or five miles laterally. Okay. That's what it is. There's ADSBs allowing certain like up to five of two, three, zero to be down to three miles, which is what the Tracons use. But as a hard, fast rule at the center, thousand feet, five miles. Got so it. If, once again, that's a no harm, no foul situation. Hmm. So, so yeah, again, I mean, it's, it's interesting to hear this perspective. I mean, we're not trying to give people loopholes as to ways no, of doing things that they're supposed to, and still get away with it. But at the same time, you know, there's this understanding of like, there is some tolerances if you need it, hopefully you won't, but if you did, we're um, so mistakes happen. Yeah. Yeah. So what other, what other stories would you like to highlight from the book or, or even mention like what, uh, what kinds of things do you, uh, do you think, stand out as sort of the the i mean they're all great but what what are your other sort of highlight ones you know there, there's just a ton of stories I mean, there's multiple stories for each chapter i got 32 chapters plus the appendices at the end the one appendice is the um the phraseology appendice where i actually go through and talk about the phraseology to practice and, and to use and all that kind of stuff and um, i actually go through an example as to um the the big with request center assessment one, two, three with request. There's absolutely zero reason to use that. And I tell you good techniques to use in for it because I don't want you to just to list a whole mouth of the, the diarrhea of the mouth type thing. But if you think about it, that is an absolute waste of breath. Center one, assessment one, two, three with request. Center one, assessment one, two, three, say request. Assessment one, two, three, we'd like to climb to 5,000. Okay, climb to 5,000. If you get rid of those first two transmissions, that saves everybody time. Huh. Now, if you're looking for approaches and you, you're wanting multiple approaches, just say that. Uh, approach, Cessna 123, um, looking for multiple practice approaches, starting off with the ILS under runway nine, nine or whatever. And okay, well, at that point, I as a controller know this isn't going to, you're not full stop. And I will get back to you because some controllers want the whole laundry list right away. Other controllers want you to tell me what your next one is on the go. So it, it all does it. So the whole with request thing, I know that's taught in several places. I used to use it myself, but man, what a waste of time when things are busy. Right. So, cause if you can get yourself set up to make your communications nice, good, clear, and concise when things are slow, that's going to make things much easier for everybody involved when things are busy. And even if a controller is busy, you're still, if you're able to do that, you're not going, you're going to be able to still get your practice approaches where if, if you're talking too much and on every single transmission, I'm not going to have time for that if I'm too busy because huh. okay. practice approaches do not have to be accommodated. We do a pretty good job at accommodating them, but they don't have to be accommodated if we're too busy. So, so that uh, appendix A is um, the over phraseology that it, it goes over a lot of that type of stuff. Well, this is all great stuff. I, I, I appreciate um, the, the perspective on this. I've got sort of one last question for you as we wind mm-hmm. down. And maybe you know the answer to this. Maybe you don't. Okay. Um, where in the world did the SIA thing come from? You know what I'm talking right. about? Where a controller says, uh, all right, uh, yeah. you know, you're exiting my airspace, uh, maintain 2,000 feet in contact, so and so and so. See like, oh, where does that come from? <laughs> I, I don't know. I do talk about the, uh, what I, what I call the, the cool, I'm a cool pilot voice. The, you know, I'm sure you've heard it where the guy's sitting there talking in the deepest voice possible and all that kind of stuff. I've like, never done that before. I, I know we, we, and the answer is yes, we are laughing at those people. <laughs> so, but yeah, I, I have no idea. Just, uh, get bored, I guess. <laughs> yeah. I just, I I've always wondered where that came from because I, I, they used to do it at the, uh, the tower that I learned at in battle Creek, Michigan. Oh, okay. And I thought it was just a battle Creek thing. I thought it was just the controllers were having fun. Also and... the controllers doing it, not the pilots. Yeah. Oh, well, okay. I mean, I mean the pilots started doing it cause the controllers were doing it, but, yeah. um, 
you know, they, they, they would do that. And, and I thought it was just sort of, that's what they do because they train and they've got so many people in the pattern. They just want to have a little bit of fun. Um, And then as I started sort of traveling the country, I started hearing it in multiple places. And sometimes it was tower. Sometimes it was uh, approach. Sometimes it was even, you know, um, center. And I just want, I was curious if there's like something you learn in ATC school. That's like, you know what? Every so often, just throw it a bottom line is we get bored. (laughs) (laughs) That's all I have for that one. I don't know. (laughs) But uh, when it's not busy, we get bored. (laughs) Yeah, no, I get it. So, um, Andy, for those that uh, that are wondering about this book, where would Mm -hmm. they go to uh, to pick one up? You can go to the website, um, atcbook.com. So atcbook.com. And folks, you can see a picture in, uh, in Andy's background there, but uh, I have one right here um, and uh, I enjoy it. I'm going to finish it. Uh, I encourage you to uh, go to, you said atcbook.com? atcbook.com. Go to atcbook.com, get one. Um, Andy, you were kind enough to uh, mention the National Association of Flight Instructors in your book. Um, we as an organization appreciate that. We appreciate what you're doing. Um, and uh, sort of sharing the knowledge and the, and the safety culture is something that, uh, that we are, um, you know, very fond of. And uh, your time here has been uh, greatly appreciated. Any final thoughts, any, anything else you want to mention before we, uh, before we say goodbye? Nope. Uh, the reason why I put you guys in the book is because I appreciate everything that you guys are doing to enhance safety for everybody out there and uh, appreciate your time as well. Well, folks, uh, once again, thanks to Andy for uh, joining us today. Thank you for listening. If, uh, if you like the podcast, please give us a, uh, a rating on uh, Apple Podcasts or uh, any of the other places that you may be listening. Subscribe if you could, and uh, we'll, uh, we'll have more content for you in two weeks. So thank you so much. <laughs>